Uh, tonight we're talking about uh, atonement and justification. I was just telling these guys it's a really great teaching, but it's very heavy in the scripture. So there's just like a lot to read and get through. So I'm going to probably talk kind of quickly, which I normally do already. Uh, and, I, and like I said, I want to spend the most time on atonement, justification. But before that, I'll also touch on sin, because sin is the reason we need to be justified and have atonement in the first place. Um, before I jump into it, I'm going to go ahead and open us up in prayer. Put those over there for some guys. <clears throat> Dear God, uh, we... We're here to hear from you. We're here to learn. Um, You are loving. You're gracious. You're merciful to us. And we are grateful for that. God, teach us. Soften our hearts. Open our ears. Um, You know, tell us what you want to tell us tonight through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, okay. Always a good spot to start with some definitions. Uh, So you can pick up there in your notes, atonement. In general, it refers to the need for reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God. Uh, For our class and the conversation tonight, it's the uh, work of Christ dying on the cross as a sacrifice on our behalf, fulfilling debt to God because of sin. Justification, here's the definition for that. It's It's a legal term. It's a right legal standing before God. Uh, Justification comes after faith and as God's response to our faith. Like I said earlier, I want to touch base on sin. Uh, So sin can be defined as any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So that kind of covers everything. Uh, Acts, obviously, those are easy, like overt acts. Attitude covers this idea of like our hearts and why we're doing things and our nature Uh, covers this idea that really as humans we are sinful and that's I mean it's kind of an interesting idea because I think we recognize this easily within a Christian world meaning like our Christian world like church and stuff that most people recognize they have sin Uh, but outside of that you know you'll, you'll come across people of course who are relativists and maybe dismiss this idea of objective morality and good and evil and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of complex. Um, Here's our first scripture, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul here, uh, the word he uses for sin is this Greek, hamertano. And it's actually used, it's a really interesting word because it's used in ancient times and it refers to when an archer would miss the target or the bullseye. Uh, So here... He's using this word uh, picture to show that we're missing God's mark, which of course is perfection and holiness. Uh, In Isaiah 6.3, this is a vision Isaiah is seeing. He's describing what angels are saying in heaven. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In ancient times, it was common to repeat words to provide emphasis. So I, I, we actually have kind of a modern-day similarity. Uh, you might be talking to a friend, and they went on a date with a girl, and things, things were, went well, and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we, I gave her a kiss goodnight. And so your follow-up question might be, well, did you kiss her, or was it a kiss-kiss? 
and so this this you know repetition gives it a different emphasis so the, I use that it's a great analogy and but really you know the angels are saying holy not just holy holy but holy 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 three times it, it again provides this over emphasis um, all right so going back to sin here for a moment the Bible uses a variety of analogies to describe sin. One that I find helpful and easy to grasp is that sin incurs a debt to God. So like because of our sin, we owe him something. And uh, this is exemplified in the Lord's Prayer, which here is in Matthew 5:12, And forgive us our debts, this is Jesus speaking, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So another kind of side point is that this debt we have to God is so great and substantial that we cannot pay it uh, ourselves. Uh, we don't have the bank account, as it were, or the ability to even repay this debt that we owe to God. All right, so let me jump into atonement. The Hebrew and Greek words uh, that are translated to atonement most often are purgation and cleansing. Purgation is defined as the purification or cleansing of someone or something. Atonement is English from uh, at one which is referring to God and man being reconciled, being pulled back together. So sin creates this separation, but atonement brings us uh, back together. So let's cover the uh, biblical basis for atonement. Uh, first point we need to understand is that sin, and we talked about this a little bit last week, sin requires a blood sacrifice. Uh, Hebrews 9, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this is a New Testament um, reference. And we, again, we talked about it before. You know, God's created this system, uh, this, you know, the universe that we live in, the reality that we inhabit. And it may not, you know, always add up to what we think it, it, it should be or might be. So it can sound a little odd at first. Uh, Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And I use this one to, uh, here because it's an Old Testament reference. So all throughout you know, Scripture, atonement is always through blood. Um, and we, again, when we're talking about covenants before, I also mentioned it's, it's always a good way when you're studying the Bible, one, one idea, one method is to visualize it, to try to kind of put yourself in the story, in the shoes. So we've got to take ourselves back to a, a time where uh, culture and religion was full of ritual practices that had serious symbolic meaning. And this was a common way or a primary form of worship and interaction with gods. I was trying to come up with a modern-day example of this, and, and one that came to mind uh, was a wedding. And a wedding is usually, you know, maybe the ceremony is about an hour. Uh, it has, it's a sort of a ritual. You know, we say things, we take vows, you, you do things, you exchange rings. But what's most important about the wedding isn't the rituals, but rather what it symbolizes, which is this deep commitment and covenant that you're making you know with another person and you know you're saying for better or for worse or whatever vows you have so again it's really this rich symbolism to the ritual in the same way the atonement uh, and the sacrifices work that way what's interesting is that in the bible the most common portrayal of atonement is christ's death as a sacrifice to god on our behalf 
This is in Ephesians 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in the Old Testament, uh, there's lots of different types of, of sacrifices, and this is uh, detailed in Leviticus chapter 4. But the main point, so the main purposes or functions of, this, of the sacrifices were, were first to remove sin. This is in Leviticus 16.30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And then the second point of sacrifices too is to satisfy God. Here's some real big terms. So the first one, removing sin, is uh, expiation. And satisfying God is propitiation. So God like has this, um, he is just, we owe him this debt, and he's going to collect. Uh, or else he wouldn't be just if he just lets things slide. Um, so the old, but it's always good to keep in mind that the Old Testament system was not meant to be forever. And these, verse, and these following verses here in Hebrews 9 and 10 show that Christ removes sin once and for all. Uh, so Hebrews 10 and 9, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. Uh, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For since the law ha- was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, uh, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So this, again, is a New Testament. The author of Hebrews is really drawing this connection between the Old Testament system, but how it wasn't perfect and wasn't meant to be the end all, but really Christ fulfills all of this, and now is a new system, new covenant. We talked about that again when we were talking about the covenants. So this is, he's pointing out, this is, the author of Hebrews is pointing out, this is exactly what Christ did. You know, the, these purposes of the Old Testament sacrifices, well, one, again, Christ removes sin, and two, God is satisfied with his sacrifice. So he's propitiated, he's satisfied. Um, I'm going to read this uh, kind of longer passage. It's in Romans 3, verses 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And then in Romans 5, 9, since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So this is really, Paul is explicitly drawing this connection, showing how Christ's atonement and sacrifice fulfilled this, these, um, it was the same roles, fulfilled the um, old, old law and the old system. A key aspect to all of this is that Christ is our representative. Uh, Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that he's referring to Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, he's referring to Christ, the many will be made righteous. And also 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us but we, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, 
therefore all have died. So atonement, um, this sacrifice, this process that Christ went through, it brings redemption. And in the ancient world, this notion of redemption uh, had to do with buying of prisoners of war out of captivity or of slaves out of slavery. <clears throat> and I, I really like that, um, this, this connection, because again, I, I think one of the best analogies for sin is incurring this debt. We are slaves to sin. Uh, scripture class of, uh, talks about it like this. So what Christ is doing with his atonement is he's like, he's paying the price. He's buying us back. He's reconciling us uh, to God. He's redeeming this relationship that's been broken because of sin. I want to talk a little bit about um, the history behind the doctrine of the atonement. And there's, there's lots of theories behind it. We kind of talked about actually theories of reconciliation and hell last week with, with uh, Pastor Colin. Um, and so similarly, there's these different ideas about atonement. How was it accomplished? Why? What was God's motivation? How did it all kind of work? Some of the nuances to it. Um, but for the sake of time, I want to really focus on uh, one of them that's probably the most commonly adopted view, and it's called penal substitution. Uh, penal, the first part there, is this idea that there's a penalty for our sins, our debts, and then the second part, substitution, that Christ was our representative and paid that debt. So a definition of penal substitution, Christ voluntarily bore the suffering that we were due as the punishment for our sins. One of the reasons that this is a primary theory um, of atonement is because it, you, when you're thinking about the atonement, you've got to take into account that Christ is truly paying directly for our sins. Um, and I think this is best exemplified by Isaiah 53. There's some verses here I'm going to quote. Um, but it's, before I do that, it's good to keep in mind that Isaiah was a prophet. Now, he came 700 years before Christ. So he's describing what the Messiah you know, is going to be. So here, Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So I think it really brings that uh, point home. So another main point that I don't want to... It's hard. I can't get into all the details, but that shouldn't be lost is that the whole scheme, this atonement, is motivated actually by God's grace and love for us. Ephesians, I got some verses to exemplify that. Ephesians 2, uh, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. And then John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So going back to a common analogy that I, that I like to use often, that God's our Heavenly Father, that we're His children. I think it's a really easy, relatable uh, metaphor. And you guys know that I have, I have two sons, I have two toddlers. And so when I think about them, and I think about the future, uh, they're, they're toddlers now, so there's a long road ahead of us. <laughs> and it's going to be a bumpy road, I recognize that. You know, they may do things in their lives that are really harmful or hurtful, I should say. It could be harmful too, but like really hurtful, you know, making poor decisions, we all have, but some are more serious than others. 
But the point I'm bringing up is regardless of the path they take or the decisions they make, you know, I'm still going to love them. I'm not going to give up on them and I'm going to always welcome them back and I'm going to pursue them. You know, I'm not going to just, um, just throw them out or just disregard them, you know, ever. Like there's literally nothing that would ever arise that could make me do that. And so if I have this mentality or feelings toward, and I'm, you know, a sinful guy, right? I'm a sinful man. I'm a per- human. Like how much more then is God like that to us when he goes through this and has redeemed us and adopted us into his family? It's the same way, you know, he, he's, and he does it in a perfect sense where I, I couldn't. <clears throat> and it's a really, um, it's a deep spiritual truth that has, I think, ramifications, you know, for your view of God, uh, where you're at, your view of other people too. Like when I say that, I believe that God generally pursue everyone is able to be saved. And God generally wants, loves everyone and generally wants everyone to be reconciled to him. That's not going to happen. People reject him. But this idea of love and grace is his main motivation. All right, let's move on to justification. So the reason I include justification with atonement is that the death and resurrection of Jesus, this atonement, uh, are two sides of the same coin. So in Romans 4.25, Paul points this out. He, referring to uh, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses, that's the um, atonement, and raised for our justification. So justification, earlier I gave you the definition, I'll give it again. It's this legal uh, term. It's the legal, excuse me, right legal standing before God. Justification comes after faith as God's response to our faith. Romans 5.1, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16, a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So Grudem, I, li- I like this quote he's got. He says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which, one, he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So the verb justify in the New Testament, it's got a wide range of, of meanings, but it has a, a very common sense that uh, it's to declare uh, righteous. Uh, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the legal sense of justification becomes even more evident uh, when it's contrast, Paul contrasts it, juxtaposes it to condemnation. Uh, so it's like the op- justification is the opposite of condemnation. So Romans 8, 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So it's important to, to emphasize that this legal declaration, so you have this faith. Sometimes, you know, growing up, I'll tell you that I was a pretty firm believer that this moment of faith, you know, was essentially like a prayer or there was a time or a moment that you became saved, as it were. You were reconciled. You were declared righteous. But to some extent, I've actually seen, I think there is room that it could be a process, not necessarily a specific moment in time, but rather you know, over a length of time, or maybe not one event, but a series of events that then someone 
is justified um, in their life at some point. Uh, okay, so okay, going back to my point. It's important to emphasize this legal declaration, declaration in itself does not change our internal nature or character. It's simply a declaration on God's part. So like we talked before, you know, we have sin in our lives. We are sinful by nature. So what happens is, is that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us. It's put in our place. And therefore, God thinks of it as if it belongs to us, meaning Christ's righteousness belongs to us which is why we're justified. So it's not our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that is freely given to us. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Growing up I, uh, in my church, there was this common analogy, I'm going to kind of drive this point home, um, where it was a presentation of the gospel. And so the pastor or whoever is preaching would say, hey, all right, he'd pull out his wallet and say, you know, I'm going to let this hand uh, represent us. I'm going to let this hand represent Christ. And I'm going to let my phone in this case represent sin. So, of course, all have fallen short and have sinned. We talked about that. And then he would quote 2 Corinthians 5.21, for the sake, for, excuse me, for our sake, he, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, to be, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he would like, you know, obviously you can't see it on the recording, but this transfer of our sin onto him, and then he transfers his righteousness onto us. And it's just a nice little word picture. <clears throat> um, as these verses above demonstrate justification comes to us entirely by God's grace and not any merit of our own. And another uh, main point is that justification, because it comes through faith alone and is not of works, you cannot add or take away from your justification, from Christ's atonement. So a brief side note, because of this, when you're justified, when you receive God's grace, you cannot lose your salvation. Um, and that's called, um, some people call that eternal security. So God's justifying you. You can't take away from it. I want to talk about some application. First point, you have been forgiven and need to not dwell on the past. Philippians 3, 13 through 15. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Colossians 3, 13 through 15. This is referring to God. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30. Take my yoke. So this is Christ talking. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's also kind of, that's an interesting, you know, you don't think about this that often, but we deal with serious struggles and sin in our lives and difficulties and here we have Christ is literally telling you 
give it to me. It couldn't be any more clear, right? And what's even more interesting is he says it's easy for him. His burden is light. Like he can handle it. And we kind of, you know, we can get bogged down and in a rut where we have mountain experiences, we have valleys, we get down in this valley and we think that like you're lost, God can't find you, he can't forgive you, he can't pull you out of this. And it's quite the opposite. Christ is saying, put it on me, it's easy. Like I got it. It's not easy for us, but it's easy for him. And so that's also a good point. You know, when I sh- I'm showing with temptation, really, I'm not looking inwardly. You've got to look outside of yourself to Christ. And that's how you can overcome sin. Second application point. We have a new identity in Christ. So we, I talked about this great transaction, us, God imputing his righteousness to us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So that's another really cool aspect to atonement and justification is that because of that, God then uses us in that ministry, meaning his expansion of the kingdom because of what he's done in our lives, he then enables us to help other people along the way. Now, it's God and the Holy Spirit that's changing hearts, but he chooses to use us in that. So again, you're not responsible for changing the hearts, but God can put things in your lives or you know, have moments where you can step up and be bold in faith and um, help expand the kingdom. He involves us in it. <clears throat> All right, third, um, third application point. We should be humble. So we didn't earn salvation. The only difference between Christians and non-believers is that we're saved and are being sanctified while non-believers are still going to seek God's justice and judgment. So we still sin. And what's, what's, um, what's the reality is that statistics show there is just as much sin in the church as there is outside the church. So the statistics don't lie. There is just as much divorce. There is just as much, you know, pregnancies and termination of pregnancies in the church as there is outside. So the stats show, like, you know, we don't have, we need to be humble. (laughs) And because it's not of ourselves and we sin just like other people do. First Peter, excuse me, First Peter 5, 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So C.S. Lewis has this great quote about humility, and it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Tim Keller expounds on that, expands on it, and says an example of humility is that you celebrate other people. So I think, you know, we talked about these three application points, and I try to get, you know, I, I, I learn from your relationship with you guys and other people, you know, God teaches us, and me in specific, you know, through our relationships. And so everyone, hopefully, has probably come across somebody who's really good at encouraging and giving you compliments and um, you know, it makes you feel good, <laughs> right? 
Like everybody likes that. Everybody likes when somebody tells you, hey, like you did a good job here. You're boss. Even, even, even like secular people, right? They want to have compliments and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it can be a, um, a practice in humility to lift somebody else up. So a challenge would be, hey, like this week, try to find an opportunity, whether it's your spouse, friends, coworkers, whatever, try to find some opportunity to give someone, you know, an encouragement, a compliment. And, and it really puts a spotlight away from you and on them. And I think this is an exercise in humility. Uh, I really appreciate you guys coming tonight, even with the rain and everything. And I know it's a lot real quickly. So I want to hear from you. I would love to hear.